0: book one chapters eleven and twelve of the fatal three by mary elizabeth Braddon this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter eleven the beginning of doubt enderby church clock struck six they heard every chime slow and clear in the summer stillness as they sat in the broad shadow of the cedar silent all three it seemed as if the striking of the clock were the breaking of a spell so late exclaimed castellani in a cheery voice and i promise mrs hillersdon to be back in time to drive to romsey for the evening service the old abbey church of romsey she tells me is a thing to dream about there is no eight o'clock dinner at riverdale on sundays every one goes to church somewhere and we sup at half-past nine and after supper there is sometimes extempore prayer and sometimes there are charades or dum crambo C'est salon when the prince was there they had dumb crambo good-bye i am almost ashamed to ask if i may ever come again after having bored you for such an unconscionable time he had the easiest air possible and seemed totally unconscious of any embarrassment caused by his allusions to the past and yet in both faces as he looked from one to the other he must have seen the strongest indications of trouble mrs greswold murmured something to the effect that she would be glad to see him at any time A speech obviously conventional and unmeaning mr greswold rose hastily and accompanied him to the hall door where the cart still waited for him the groom fixed as a statue of despondency mr castellani was inclined to be loquacious to the last greswold was brief almost to incivility he stood watching the light cart roll away and then slowly went back to the garden and to his seat under the cedar he seated himself without a word looking earnestly at his wife whose drooping head and fixed attitude told of deepest thought so they sat for some minutes in dead silence cassandra licking her master's pendant hand as he leaned forward with his elbow on his knee infinitely sorry for him mildred was the first to break that silence george why did you not tell me she began in a low faltering voice that i was not your first wife What reason could there be for concealment between you and me? I so trusted you, I so loved you. Nothing you could have told would have changed me, dearest. There was one reason and a powerful one, answered George Greswold firmly, meeting the appealing look of her eyes with a clear and steady gaze. My first marriage is a sad remembrance for me, full of trouble. I did not care to tell you that miserable story, to call a dreaded ghost out of the grave of the past my first marriage was the one great sorrow of my life but it was only an episode in my life it left me as lonely as it found me there are very few who know anything about it i am sorry that young man should have come here to trouble us with his uninvited reminiscences for my own part i cannot remember ever having seen his face before i am sorry you should have kept such a secret from me said mildred it would have been so much wiser to have been candid Do you think I should not have respected your sad memories? You had only to say to me, such things were, but let us not talk of them. It would have been more manly, it would have been kinder to me. Say that I was a coward if you like, that I am still a coward where those memories are concerned, said Greswold. The look of agony in his face melted her in a moment. She threw herself on her knees beside his chair, she and the dog fawning upon him together. Forgive me, forgive me, dearest she pleaded i will never speak to you of this again women are so jealous of the past most of all is that all he said god knows you have little need let us say no more mildred the past is past neither you nor i can alter it memory is inexorable god himself cannot change it i will contrive that mr castellani shall not come here again george if you object to see him pray don't trouble yourself I would not have such a worm suppose that he could be obnoxious to me tell me what you think of him she asked in a lighter tone anxious to bring back the easy mood of everyday life he seems very clever and he is rather handsome what do i think of the trumpet ash on the veranda yonder a beautiful parasite which will hold on anywhere in the sunshine mr castellani is of the same family i take it studies his own interests first and chooses his friends afterwards he will do admirably for Riverdale. He plays divinely. His touch transformed my piano. He looks the kind of man who would play the piano, said Greswold, with ineffable contempt, looking down at his own sunburnt hands, hardened by exposure to all weathers, broadened by handling gun and punt pole, and by half a dozen other forms of outdoor exercise. However, I have no objection to him, if he serves to amuse you and Pamela. He spoke with a kind of weary indifference as of a man who cared for very little in life and then he rose slowly took up his stick and strolled off to the shrubbery pamela appeared on the following afternoon with boxes bags music-books raquettes and parasols in a proportion which gave promise of a long visit she had asked as a tremendous favour to be allowed to bring box otherwise fitzbox her fox terrier son of sir henry mountford's box great-grandson of brockenhurst joe through that distinguished animal's daughter lyndhurst jessie and on the paternal side a lineal descendant of mr murchison's cracknell i hope you won't mind very much she wrote but it would be death to him if i were to leave him behind to begin with his brother Fitzcox, who has a villainous temper would inevitably kill him and besides that he would pine to death at not sleeping in my room at night which he has done ever since he was a puppy if you will let me bring him i will answer for his good manners and that he shall not be a trouble to any one the descendant of brockenhurst joe rushed out into the garden and made a lightning circuit of lawn and shrubberies while his young mistress was kissing her aunt mildred as she called her uncle's wife in the fulness of her affection it is so very good of you to have me and i am so delighted to come she said mildred would have preferred that she were anywhere else yet could not help feeling kindly to her She was a frank, bright-looking girl with brown eyes and almost flaxen hair. A piquant contrast, for the hair was genuine, and carried out in the eyebrows which were only a shade darker. Her complexion was fair to transparency, and she had just enough soft rosy bloom to light up the delicate skin. Her nose was slightly retrousse, her mouth was a little wider than she herself approved, and her teeth were perfection. She had a charming figure of the plump order, but its plumpness was a distress to her don't you think i get horribly stout she asked mildred when she was sitting at tea in the garden presently you may be a little stouter than you were at sixteen perhaps but not at all too stout oh but i am i know it i feel it don't endeavour to spare my feelings aunt it is useless i know i am fat rosalind says i ought to marry but i tell her it's absurd how can anybody care for me now i am fat they would only want my money if they asked me to marry them Concluded Pamela, clinging to the plural, my dear Pamela, do you wish me to tell you that you are charming and all that you ought to be? asked Mildred, laughing. Oh, no, no, I don't want you to spare my feelings. Everybody spares one's feelings. One grows up in ignorance of the horror of one's appearance because people will spare one's feelings, and then one sees oneself in a strange glass, or a boy in the street says something, and one knows the worst. I think I know the worst about myself. That is one comfort. How lovely it is here! said Pamela with a sudden change of mood, glancing at Mildred with a little pathetic look as she remembered the childish figure that must be for ever missing from that home picture. I am so glad to be with you, she murmured softly, nestling up to Mildred's side as they sat together on a rustic bench. Let me be useful to you, let me be a companion to you if you can. You shall be both, dear. How good to say that! And you won't mind box not in the least if he will be amiable to cassandra he will he has been brought up among other dogs we are a very doggy family at the hall would you think he was worth a hundred and fifty guineas asked pamela with ill-concealed pride as the scion of illustrious progenitors came up and put his long lean head in her hand and conversed with her in a series of expressive snorts as if it were a conversational code i hardly know what constitutes perfection in a fox-terrier no more do i but i know he is perfect he is said to be the image of cracknell only better i tremble when i think that my possession of him hangs by a thread he might be stolen at any moment you must be careful yes i cannot be too careful here comes uncle george said pamela rising and running to meet mr greswold oh uncle george how altered you are she was always saying the wrong thing after the manner of impulsive girls and she was quick-witted enough to discover her mistake the instant after happily the dogs furnished a ready diversion she introduced box and expatiated upon his grand qualities she admired and made friends with cassandra and then settled down almost as lightly as a butterfly in spite of her plumpness on a japanese stool to take her teacup from mildred's hands she was perfectly at her ease by this time and told her uncle and aunt all about her sister rosalind and rosalind's husband sir henry mountford whom she summed up lightly as a nice old thing and no end of fun it was easy to divine from her discourse that raynham hall was not an especially intellectual atmosphere not a school of advanced thought or of any other kind of thought pamela's talk was of tennis yachting fishing and shooting and of the people who shared in those sports she seemed to belong to a world in which nobody ever sat down except to eat or stayed indoors except under stress of weather i hear you have all manner of clever people in your neighbourhood she said by-and-by having told all she had to tell about raynham have we asked greswold smiling at her intensity yes at riverdale they do say the author of nepenthe is staying there and that he is not a roman cardinal or an english statesman but almost a young man an italian by birth and very handsome i would give worlds to see him it is not unlikely you may be gratified without giving anything answered her uncle mr castellani was here yesterday afternoon and threatened to repeat his visit castellani yes that is the name i heard what a pretty name and what is he like do tell me all about him aunt mildred she turned to the woman as the more likely to give her a graphic description the average man is an undescribing animal mildred made an effort at self-command before she spoke castellani counted for but little in her recent trouble his revelation had been an accident and its effect entirely dissociated from him yet the very thought of the man troubled her and the dread of seeing him again was like a physical pain i do not know what to say about his appearance she answered presently slowly fanning herself with the great scarlet japanese fan pale and cool-looking in her plain white gown with its black ribbons the very picture of domestic peace one would suppose judging by externals only i suppose there are people who would think him handsome don't you aunt no i don't like the colour of his eyes or of his hair they are of that reddish-brown which the venetian painters are so fond of but which always gives me an idea of falsehood and treachery mr castellani is a very clever man but he is not a man whom i could ever trust how nice cried pamela her face radiant with enthusiasm a creature with red-brown hair and eyes with a depth of falsehood in them That is just the kind of man who might be the author of Nepenthe. If you had told me he was stout and rosy cheeked, with pepper and salt whiskers, and a fine benevolent head, I would never have opened his book again. You seem to admire this Nepenthe prodigiously, said her uncle, looking at her with a calmly critical air. Is it because the book is the fashion, or from your own unassisted appreciation of it? I did not think you were a bookish person. I'm not, cried Pamela. I am a mass of ignorance. I don't know anything about science. I don't know the name of a single butterfly. I don't know one toadstool from another. But when I love a book it is a passion with me. My Keats has tumbled to pieces, my Shelley is disgracefully dirty. I have read Nepenthe six times, and I am waiting for the cheap edition to keep it under my pillow. It has made me an agnostic. Do you know the dictionary meaning of that word? I don't think I do, but I know I am an agnostic nepenthe has unsettled all my old beliefs if i had read it four years ago i should have refused to be confirmed i am dying to know the author you like unbelievers then said mr greswold i adore men who dare to doubt who are not afraid to stand apart from their fellow-men on a bad eminence yes on a bad eminence what a sweet expression i can never understand gurgis gretchen why not how could she have cared for faust when she had the privilege of knowing mephistopheles pamela ransom had established herself in her pretty bedroom and dressing room and had supervised her maid while she unpacked and arranged all her belongings before dinner time she came down to the drawing room at a quarter to eight as thoroughly at her ease as if she had lived half her life at enderby manor she was a kind of visitor who gives no trouble and who drops into the right place instinctively mildred greswold felt cheered by her presence in spite of that ever-recurrent pang of memory which associated all young bright things with the sweet girl child who should have grown to womanhood under that roof and who was lying a little way off under the ripening berries of the mountain ash and in the deep shadow of a century-old yew they were very quiet in the drawing-room after dinner greswold reading in a nook apart by the light of his own particular lamp his wife bending over an embroidery frame in her corner near the piano where she had her own special dwarf bookcase in her work-basket and the bonheur du jour at which she sometimes wrote letters her own little table scattered with old family miniatures by angelica Kaufman, causeway and ross and antique watches in enamelled cases and boxes of porcelain and gold and silver every one of which had its history every woman who lives much at home has some such corner where the very atmosphere is full of home thoughts she asked her niece to play and to go on playing as long as she liked and pamela pleased with the touch of the broadwood grand rang the changes upon chopin schumann raff and brahms choosing those compositions which least jarred upon the atmosphere of studious repose mildred's needle moved slowly as she sat in her low chair with her hands in the lamplight and her face in shadow moved very slowly and then stopped altogether and the white hands lay idle in her lap and the embroidery frame with its half-finished group of azaleas slid from her knee to the ground she was thinking thinking of that one subject which had possessed her thoughts since yesterday afternoon which had kept her awake through the brief darkness of the summer night and in the slow hours betwixt dawn and seven o'clock when the entrance of the maid with the early cup of tea marked the beginning of the daily routine in all those hours her thoughts had revolved round that one theme with an intolerable recurrence it was of her husband's first marriage she thought and of his motive for silence about that marriage that he who in the whole course of their wedded lives had been the very spirit of single-minded candour should yet have suppressed this all-important event in his past history was a fact in itself so startling and mysterious that it might well be the focus of a wife's troubled thoughts he could not so have acted without some all-sufficient reason and what manner of reason could that have been which had influenced him to conduct so entirely at variance with his own character what was there in the history of that marriage which had sealed his lips which made it horrible to him to speak about it even when fair dealing with the girl who was to be his wife should have constrained frankness had he been cursed with a wicked wife some beautiful creature who had caught his heart in her toils as a cat catches a bird and had won him only to betray and to dishonour him had she blighted his life branded him with the shame of a forsaken husband and then a hideous dread floated across her mind what if that first wife were still living, divorced from him? Had she, Mildred Fawcett, severely trained in the strictest principles of the Anglican Church, taught her creed by an ascetic who deemed divorce unchristian and an abomination, and who had always refused to marry those who had been divorced? Had she, in whose life and mind religion and duty were as one feeling and one principle, had she been trapped into a union with a man whose wife yet lived and, in the sight of God, was yet one with him? a wife who might crawl penitent to his feet some day and claim him as her own again by the right of tears and prayers and a soul cleansed from sin such a sinner must have some hold some claim even to the last upon the man who once was her husband who once swore to cherish her and cleave to her of whom it had once been said and they two shall be one flesh no again and again no she could not believe george greswold capable of such deep dishonour as to have concealed the existence of a divorced wife no the reason for that mysterious silence must be another reason than this she had sinned against him it might be and had died in her sin under circumstances too sad to be told without infinite pain and he who had never in her experience shown himself wanting in moral courage had in this one crisis of his life acted as the coward acts he had kept silence where conscience should have constrained him to speak and then the wife's vivid fancy conjured up the image of that other wife her jealous fears depicted that wife of past years as a being to be loved and remembered until death beautiful fascinating gifted with all the qualities that charm mankind he can never care for me as he once cared for her mildred told herself she was his first love his first The first revelation of what love means to the passionate heart of youth what a world there is in that mildred remembered how a new life began for her with the awakening of her love for george greswold what a strange sweet enchantment what an intoxicating gladness which glorified the whole face of nature the river and the reedy islets and the pollard windows and the autumn sunsets things so simple and familiar had all taken new colours in that magical dawn of her first love. She, that unknown woman, had been George Greswold's first love. Mildred envied her that brief life, whose sole distinction was to have been loved by him. "'Why do I imagine a mystery about her?' she argued after long brooding. "'The only secret was that he loved her as he could never love me, and he feared to tell me as much lest I should refuse the remnant of a heart. It was out of kindness to me that he kept silence.' It would have pained me too much to know how she had been loved. She knew that her husband was a man of exceeding sensitiveness. She knew him capable of almost womanlike delicacy. Was it altogether unnatural that such a man should have held back the history of his first marriage, with its passionate love, its heartbroken ending, from the enthusiastic girl who had given him all her heart, and to whom he could give so little in return? He may have seen how I loved him, and may have married me half out of pity she said to herself finally with unspeakable bitterness yet if this were so could they have been so happy together so completely united save in that one secret of the past that one dark regret which had revealed itself from time to time in an agonizing dream he had walked that dark labyrinth of sleep alone with his sorrow there she could not follow him she remembered the awful sound of those broken sentences spoken to shadows in a land of shadow she remembered how acutely she had felt his remoteness as he sat up in bed pale as death his eyes open and fixed his lips muttering he and the dead were face to face in the halls of the past she had no part in his life or in his memory chapter twelve she cannot be unworthy mr castellani did not wait long before he availed himself of mrs greswold's permission to repeat his visit he appeared on friday afternoon at the orthodox hour of half-past three when mildred and her niece were sitting in the drawing-room exhausted by a long morning at salisbury where they had explored the cathedral and lunched in the clothes with a clever friend of george greswold's who had made his mark on modern literature i adore salisbury clothes said pamela as she looked through the old-fashioned window to the old-fashioned garden it reminds me of honoria she did not deem it necessary to explain what honoria she meant presuming a universal acquaintance with coventry patmore's gentle heroine the morning had been sultry the homeward drive long and both ladies were resting in comfortable silence each with a book when castellani was announced mildred received him rather coldly trying her uttermost to seem thoroughly at ease she introduced him to her niece miss ransome the daughter of the late mr randolph ransome and the sister of lady Mountfort castellani inquired presently when pamela had run out on the lawn to speak to box yes you seem to know everybody's belongings why not it is the duty of every man of the world more especially of a foreigner i know mr ransome's place in the sussex weald a very fine property and i know that the two ladies are co heiresses but that the sussex estate is to descend to the eldest son of the elder daughter or failing male issue there to the son of the younger lady mountford has a baby son i believe your information is altogether correct why should it be otherwise mr hillersdon and his wife discussed the family history to-day at luncheon apropos to miss ransome's appearance in romsey church at the saints day service yesterday his frankness apologized for his impertinence and he was a foreigner which seems always to excuse a great deal pamela came back again after rescuing box from a rough-and-tumble game with cassandra she looked rosy and breathless and very pretty in her pale blue gown and girlish sash flying in the wind and flaxen hair fluffed into a feathery pile on the top of her head and honest brown eyes she resumed her seat in the deep old window behind the end of the piano and made believe to go on with some work which she took in a tangled heap from a very untidy basket already pamela had set the sign of her presence upon the drawing-rooms at enderby a trail of heterogeneous litter which was part of her individuality screened by the piano she was able to observe castellani as he stood leaning over the large central ottoman with his knee on the cushioned seat talking to mrs greswold he was the author of nepenthe it was in that character he interested her she looked at him with the thought of his book full in her mind it was one of those half-mad wholly artificial compositions which delight girls and young men and which are just clever enough and have just enough originality to get talked about and written about by the cultured few it was a love story ending tragically a story of ruined lives and broken hearts told in the autobiographical form with a studied avoidance of all conventional ornament which gave an air of reality where all was inherently false pamela thought it must be castellani's own story she fancied she could see the traces of those heart-breaking experiences those crushing disappointments in his countenance in his bearing even and in the tones of his voice which gave an impression of mental fatigue as of a man worn out by a fatal passion the story of nepenthe was as old as the hills or at least as old as the boulevard des capucines and the palais royal it was the story of a virtuous young man's love for an unvirtuous woman the story of demetrius and lamia the story of a man's demoralization under the influence of incarnate falsehood Of the gradual lapse from good to evil the gradual extinction of every belief and every scruple the final destruction of a soul the wicked siren was taken her victim was left but left to expiate that miserable infatuation by an after life of misery left without a joy in the present or a hope in the future he looks like it thought pamela remembering that final chapter Mrs. Greswold was putting a few slow stitches into the azalea leaves in her embroidery frame and listening to Mr. Castellani with an air of polite indifference. Do you know that Riverdale is quite the most delightful house I have ever stayed in? he said, and I have stayed in a great many. And do you know that Mrs. Hillersdon is heartbroken at your never having called upon her? I am sorry so small a matter should touch Mrs. Hillersdon's heart. She feels it intensely. She told me so yesterday perfect candor is one of the charms of her character she is as emotional and as transparent as a child why have you not called on her you forget that riverdale is seven miles from this house does not your charity extend so far are people who live seven miles off beyond the pale i think you must visit a little further afield than seven miles there must be some other reason there is another reason which i had rather not talk about i understand you consider mrs hillersdon a person not to be visited long ago when you were a child in the nursery mrs hillersdon was an undisciplined and experienced girl and the world used her hardly is that old history never to be forgotten men who know it all have agreed to forget it why should women who only know a fragment so obstinately remember i know nothing and remember nothing about mrs hillersdon My friends are, for the most part, those of my husband's choice, and I pay no visits without his approval. He does not wish me to visit at Riverdale. You have forced me to give you a plain answer, Mr. Castellani. Why not? Plain truth is always best. I am sorry Mr. Greswold has interdicted my charming friend. You can have no idea how excellent a woman she is, or how admirable a wife. Tom Hillersden might have searched the country from border to border and not have found as good a woman. Looked at as the best woman best calculated to make him happy. And what delightful people she has brought about him. One of the most interesting men I have ever met arrived yesterday and is to preach the hospital sermon at Romsey next Sunday. He is an old friend of yours. A clergyman and an old friend of mine at Riverdale. A man of ascetic life and exceptional culture i never heard any man talk of dante better than he talked to me last night in the moonlight stroll on the terrace while the other men were in the smoking-room surely you do not mean mr Cancellor, the vicar of st elizabeth's parchment street that is the man clement Cancellor, vicar of st elizabeth's he looks like a mediaeval monk just stepped out of one of bellini's altarpieces. he is the noblest most unselfish of men said mildred warmly he has given his life to doing good among rich and poor it is so long since i have seen him we have asked him to enderby very often but he has always been too busy to come and to think that he should be in this neighbourhood and i know nothing about it and to think that he should go to riverdale rather than come here he had hardly an option it was mrs hillersdon who asked him to preach on hospital sunday she extorted a promise from him three months ago in london the vicar of romsey was enchanted you are the cleverest woman i know he said no one else could have got me such a great gun a great gun mr cancellor a great gun i can only think of him as i knew him when i was twelve years old a tall thin young man in a very shabby coat he was curate at st elizabeth's then very gaunt and hollow-cheeked but with such a sweet smile he used to come twice a week to teach me the history of the bible and the church he made me love both he is gaunt and hollow-cheeked still tall and bony and sallow and he still wears a shabby coat you will not find much difference in him i fancy only so many more years of hard work in self-sacrifice ascetic living and nightly study a man to know dante as he does must have given years of his life to that one poet and i am told that in literature Cancellor is an all-round man his monograph on pascal is said to be the best of a brilliant series of such studies i hope he will come to see his old pupil before he leaves the neighbourhood he means to do so he was talking of it yesterday evening asking mrs hillerston if she was intimate with you so awkward for poor mrs hillerston i shall be very glad to see him again may i drive him over to tea to-morrow afternoon he will be welcome here at any time or with any one if mrs hillersdon were to bring him would you still refuse to receive her i have never refused to receive her we have met and talked to each other on public occasions if mr councillor likes her she cannot be unworthy may she come with him to-morrow persisted castellani if she likes faltered mildred wondering that any woman could so force an entrance to another woman's house she did not know that it was by such forced entrances mrs hillerston had made her way into society until some of the best houses in london had been opened to her if you are not in a hurry to leave us i know my niece would much like to hear you play she said feeling that the talk about riverdale had been dull work for pamela miss ransome murmured assent if you will play something of beethoven's she entreated do you object to mozart he asked forgetting his depreciation of the valet musician's son a few days before i feel more in the humour for that prince of dramatists i will give you the supper in don giovanni you shall see Leporello trembling you shall hear the tramp of ghostly feet and then improvising upon a familiar theme he gave his own version of that wonderful scene and that music so played conjured up a picture as vivid as ever opera-house furnished to an enthralled audience pamela listened in silent rapture what a god-gifted creature this was who had so deeply moved her by his pen who moved her even more intensely by that magical touch upon the piano when he had played those last crashing chords which consigned the profligate to his doom he waited for a minute or so and then softly as if almost unawares in mere absent-minded idleness his hands wandered into the staccato accompaniment of the serenade and with the finest tenor mildred had heard since she had heard Sims reeves he sang those delicate and dainty phrases with which the seducer woos his last divinity he rose from the piano at the close of that lovely air smiling at his hearers i had no idea that you were a singer as well as a pianist said mildred you forget that music is my native tongue my father taught me to play before he taught me to read and i knew harmony before i knew my alphabet i was brought up in the house of a man who lived only for music to whom all stringed instruments were as his mother tongue it was by a caprice that he made me play the piano which he rarely touched himself he must have been a great genius said pamela with girlish fervour alas no he just missed greatness and he just missed genius he was a highly gifted man various capricious volatile and he married a woman with just enough money to ruin him. Had he been obliged to earn his bread, he might have been great. Who can say? Hunger is the slave-driver with his whip of steel, who peoples the Valhalla of nations. If Homer had not been a beggar, as well as blind, we might have had no story of Troy. Good-bye, Mrs. Greswold. Good-bye, shaking hands with Pamela. I may bring my hostess to-morrow. I—I I suppose so. Mildred answered feebly, wondering what her husband would think of such an invasion. Yet, if Clement Cancellor, who to Mildred's mind had always seemed the ideal Christian priest, if he could tolerate and consort with her, could she, Mildred Greswold, persist in the Pharisee's part and hold herself aloof from this neighbour to whose good works and kindly disposition many voices had testified in her hearing? End of chapters eleven and twelve.